The RCR shop has great gift ideas. From great looking tees, hoodies, caps, tote bags, bumper stickers and more. The RCR shop is now open at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash shop. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I've been looking forward to catching up one last time before the end of 23 with the Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs, New Zealand First Leader, of course, and there are other titles, Winston Peters. Winston, thanks for coming back on one last time before the end of the year. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. And uh, in case I forget, at the end of the program, uh, you guys have a great Christmas. <laughs> and same with you guys. We will have a good Christmas uh, because there have been some changes. Um, what a year. Hey, first up, what a year. It has been a blitzing year, really, in every way. It was, uh, how shall I put it? Um, we went out with a plan on a mission, and uh, most people thought it was impossible, but it wasn't. And uh, when it's all over, uh, we haven't had the time to ourselves. And so, uh, it's not a time to celebrate. It's really a time to reflect that we've got three years to get uh, many of the fundamentals uh, right uh, going forward. But it couldn't have happened uh, in time because, uh, you know, the country was, uh, in my view, in a uh, at an inflection where if we had failed, then I think the outcome would have been really impossible to turn around, as I've seen in some countries. Uh, and so that's a um, great news, I believe. And despite there being a number of people who are opposed or cynics, then how about giving us uh, a short time to prove what we're saying? I was watching a video of an interview with you done, would have been over 30 years ago. You're looking, I mean, you're still looking pretty good, but you're quite a bit younger looking then. And and I was just um, thinking, gosh, he doesn't know what's coming. <laughs> Well, and here funny. you are all those years later, and um, and wow, you know. Well, life is curious, but the uh, fact is uh, often when you're looking at what you think are problems or difficulties, uh, you've got to look and around you and look seriously at other people who have got it so much worse. And then about then, if you have a good hard look at yourself uh, with all the difficulties, you've got a cause to be happy and to, be, to celebrate. And... Uh, um, it's been in the, it's been a pretty motivating thing. I learned much younger. I was listening to this guy singing a song. His name was Frank Sinatra, <laughs> and the line in it was, "I've been down so long, it looks like up to me." And I thought, I don't want to be in that situation, <laughs> so uh, I've got to get uh, put the best foot forward. All the old cliches, many are uh, derived from a truth, just like the old sayings, you know, "Save the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves." Waste not, why not? These things that were not just dreamt up, they do make sense. Okay, so in no particular order, um, first, the economic story of the week, and that is the domestic product falling by 0.3%. I remember asking you in earlier chats, you know, what sort of um, economic landscape were you anticipating? That's quite a bad thing, isn't it, that contraction? Well, it's very bad, and it's very bad that we're learning it after the election. But all the information was there. It was there on the 15th of March, uh, the first economic review. It was there on the uh, in, on the twelfth uh, of August, and it was there at budget time in the middle of the year. Uh, but far too much of New Zealand politics, claiming all these years to have passed laws of transparency, have not been transparent. 
And why was it that the IMF were the ones that forecast that, that we were going to be of the 160 countries they studied in 2024 at 159? Now, we are in a circumstance where the lack of knowledge of the public of that, I put very clearly down to not just the politicians, because they're in the game, but the mainstream media who failed to do their part and to uh, in, ensure that the facts were out there. And uh, the facts were out there, but they were not given the prominence or the uh, transmission, which is the, the name and the interest and the objective of broadcasting that they should have got. And they were, what, protecting the government at the time by limiting that information is, is what you're saying? Not just limiting it, just uh, how shall I say it, Cinderella rising it, marginalising it, uh, not giving it publicity, or we're still saying, well, no, uh, others that we support have a different view. And there it is, stark, cold, in front of people now, going into Christmas. And um, why it was needed at the time of the essence of this campaign is that if people understand the gravity of things, then our chance of going forward with a better plan with a greater sense of unity, with a greater buy-in, it was dependent upon that. And yet, uh, I watched after the election the inc incredulity of the mainstream media, and even the, as they were observing in Parliament, uh, stunned by what they'd seen, but never saying, well, actually, maybe I was part of the problem because I should have seen it coming and made sure that in the interest of the business I'm in, which is called broadcasting, which is about comprehension and understanding, that I did my job. Now, it didn't, and it isn't the case for every journalist, but for far too many the mainstream media, they have to grasp what went wrong. And if they don't, then I can tell you what's going to happen. They're going to slide away as being part of the uh, currency of our democracy, and that's sad. Uh, and you're going to have uh, others to replace them, where the level of discipline or balance, which is critical for the media, may not be there. Yeah, so with this... Um... Economic situation, obviously, the government spending is part of that. And speaking of the media, when you've got state-owned media enterprises that are now seem to only exist for a particular section of the community, let's say, yet we're all funding it. I mean, do you start to look at them to save money now? Well, the reality is that there's no more funding that's going to occur, and some of it is still in existence. But here's the breathtaking thing. When they were accused of taking this money and signing up to it um, with a, an agreed narrative, they had the effrontery, the gall, if you please, to deny it. Now, that's just earth-shattering because I've got all the documents, I've got all the statements, I've got to send her doing even telling President Biden what she did. This is all there. And you've got these fact-denying people who saying, Oh, that's just fear-mongering. That's scandalous what you're saying. And the answer is, you will not be feeling this allegation, these allegations with a great uh, deal of the acuity that you are feeling them if, if they weren't true. So why don't you own up and decide that you're going to reform and improve your industry? They didn't like the word bribery. Oh, they thought that I was being horrible. Bribery, corruption, what would you call it? you know, uh, sort of arose by any other name. Well, when you've got to pay pay it back if you transgress the agreement, then that is bribery, isn't it? Yes, but you see, you're talking, having seen the documentation, so have I, 
And what I find is incredible in a long career where this would not be happening in past times, they are defying the facts, staring everybody in their face and their background and their performance, and worse still, their lack of understanding of what it is to be a reporter or a journalist. You're putting down or writing the facts of the event that you observed, not some of them, all of them. And then you're willing to say with humility, I'm doing this because the readers are entitled to make up their mind, not have their mind made up for me. Every part of this, I should go and give some lectures at journalism school, I think, because personally, I made a speech about 33 years ago. I can remember making it to the Press uh, Association, pointing out there was... There were putative or embryonic signs of the failure of New Zealand's fourth estate. And I put it then back to their lack of resource and funding to do their job properly. And so I'm not anti the media. I'm anti the uh, the emergence of the semblance of uh, an independent fourth estate when it's not there with the substance and, dare I say, the majesty and the glamour of uh, democracy that it is part of. And I um, have always believed, having watched and read in in the history, that an accurate record of what happened is critical for future judgment and education from which you take lessons uh, desirous of not repeating the same mistake. Well, the way you described it there is um, the living in denial uh, of a lot of the media. It's kind of like a psychological condition, isn't it? Well, it's a psychological question. What is it? The seven state, the seven states uh, stages of uh, regret or remorse. Yeah. Um, well, they're going through the whole lot all at once. Yeah, right. One go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and just back to the economics. So, I mean, it's early days, but is there a plan to sort of shimmy through this difficult time without too much collateral damage? Well, there's no shortcut. It's going back to the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are not nostalgia. They are not dated. They're not obsolete. The fundamentals are to take the best that you've done in the past and the proof of your success in the past and of other countries and remodel and reshape them in a responsible context to use those lessons going into the future. We look at what I do, and my pay looks at Singapore, looks at the economies like Thailand, uh, like Taiwan. Uh, economies, dare I say, like Thailand and others, uh, and um, where their success was based on some very brilliant fundamentals, and sometimes not all the time, but they've done a marvellous job. Then you look at Iceland, the Norwegian countries, the Nordic countries, so to speak, and then you um, uh, look around the uh, other parts of the world, and you see a country like Ireland that was so poor at the bottom of Europe and it made itself the Celtic tiger, so to speak. And looking at at the time, because I was in Ireland before it happened and as it was taking off, and I saw a spectacular, not experiment, but a spectacular series of policies truly work. And they are often straight away um, explained away by, oh, Ireland's in Europe. Well, so is the rest of Europe. Or they say Singapore's in Asia. Well, so is the rest of Asia. Would we please acknowledge success when we see it, learn from it, and put it into place because many of the things that they are doing is what we began doing in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s in New Zealand when we were going at 5.5% per annum. 
when we were uh, a country with only 29, that's not 1,000, 29 registered unemployed. And we had, uh, you know, I often use the example, built every modern facility uh, on the, in a country the size of the UK, with, but with a population of Manchester. We in New Zealand, well, my party understands, and I hope others do, that is uh, a demand going forward that we can um, perform because we've done it before, not once, but under um, the great leader of Seddon in the early days and then on to the, the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s and the first Labour National. And I think politicians should have a look back then and say to themselves, uh, how did, why were they so successful? And the, the reason is they understood that democracy is about the mass. It's everybody. And so if you can uplift everybody, you've got a good chance of getting the country right. It's not about segmented performance and neglect and uh, forgetting portions of the economy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we built dams, we built an entire national railway system, we built a <laughs> domestic air service that was one of the best in the world at the time. We we did pretty well. Airports, we had an air force, we had an army, we had a navy, we had frigates. And, uh, you know, we're doing all these things. And I look and think to myself, what went wrong? And it's not too complex. When proven policies get abandoned for uh, what you might call unproven experimental ideology, then it's not too difficult to see what goes next. Another, um, you copped some criticism over COP28 and uh, the, well, the timing of that and the offshore oil ban uh, being revoked, et cetera. Again, kind of an over-the-top reaction to that? Well, totally over-the-top reaction. You've got people asking questions in Parliament and you've got to uh, say to yourself, well, how did you get from your city to Parliament? How did you get to from your city to Wellington, how did you uh, get to see your mother last weekend or your constituents last weekend? And I've just been to Fiji and I was on the road with other cars being driven somewhere and I thought, yes, well, they all wanted to see the end of fossil fuels. But right here, right now, if we did that, about 90% of the population in the world would be heading towards starvation. So please understand what you're saying. We're in a, trans a transition period and there are certain things we need to keep doing to transition to where we're going to land, where what we're providing is energy that is at all hours, 24-7, and uh, 52 weeks a year, performing uh, for the economy and for uh, the economic and social conditions of the people of a country. It's that absolutism that seems to defy all acknowledgement of reality, whether it's here, or in the islands or around the world. Now, uh, if you look at the science and all the things that are coming, and when it comes to our country, uh, the change in breeding, breeding and genetics, we've got a chance of doing very, very well. But we have not got the capacity to do it overnight because the work and the level of uh, implementation for change is just not there. And my best example is uh, just as a casual one, is that they decided to go to electric vehicles. So what did the previous government do? They went for the electric vehicles, not for the ordinary people, the mass, like Henry Ford. He built cars for ordinary people that were not uh, expensive. They decided to give them uh, to those who supply support to those who are in the leafy suburbs, so to speak. It just was ridiculous. And I couldn't understand how they made that decision. Uh, but anyways, we'll get there, but um, I hope with far greater degree of common sense 
and watching others abroad so that we don't make mistakes. And if a nation has resources, you've got to use them, don't you? Well, you've got to. We're, we're, we're blessed here. We're gifted. We've got the capacity. You know, when it comes to hydropower and those things, we've got the capacity. But every sense of how to use wisely that resource means that uh, we've got far greater capacity going forward. I remember my father saying, coming home, good heavens, this place is like a ship at sea. You know what he meant? Every light's on. It shouldn't be on. There's no need for about 60 or 70% of them to be on. And he'd say, like a, here we go, like a ship at sea. And he'd say it every time he came home. And it took a while for, to, to, to get us through our heads. That's an increase in the power bill for no reason at all. Yeah. Okay, poll, latest Curia poll, um, shows that uh, New Zealand First has rolled over the top of ACT, 8.1 now, up, uh, what, two points from election uh, day, which was not very long ago, and they've fallen back to 6.2. So that momentum, that energy that New Zealand First had has has carried on. Well, it's proof that had we got the coverage that we have got after the election, before the election, which we were entitled to because we were a real player and we proved that, if we'd have got that coverage, then we'd have so many more people in Parliament. We wouldn't have settled on 8 or 9%. We'd have got past 11 or 12% easily. That was what we thought would happen if we got a fair go, but we didn't. And for those media who think otherwise, please tell us how we're going up now that we're finally after forming a government got two over two weeks, three weeks of publicity. But in that poll, there's something fascinating. There was a preferred prime minister, and there's no mention of the leader of New Zealand first. Now, why would that be? Some prejudices linger on, as you might say, and it shows in that poll that very day in the same paper that um, three preferred prime ministers but one was not the one you thought would be up there because his name was probably never mentioned in the poll in the first place. What's your that, sense of where that, that, that... Yeah, but if you're not asking yeah. whether that person is in the, in the mix, it's very likely you won't get an outcome. Well, there's, there's no obvious... Well, there's an obvious reason why you wouldn't ask that because um, you would normally put that name in, wouldn't you, given what's happened? Of course you... Of course. But if, if you're going to have a poll with accuracy, then why wouldn't that be in it? I mean, it's only a small point. But some people said to me, why was that? And I said, well, some habits die hard. Balance and fairness and professionalism is not ever present in our country. Oh, okay. And do you think, uh, do you expect that that polling to, you know, keep on kind of growing? Yes, I do. And I hope it is um, positive because in the end, we've formed a government under MMP and our job is to make it successful and do the max we can to ensure it is. And often, sometimes in arrangements like this, someone will say something that they should not have said. Well, before we beat our gums about it, why don't we just ask about the circumstances, learn from it, and not, as I say, run sort of strict, rigid rule over it, because everyone's going to be human. They're going to make a statement or put out a press statement, and then someone's going to say, but you shouldn't have said that, and the answer is, well, I wish I'd have heard that before you challenged me because I wouldn't have said it. But this is these are early days. And um, a couple of times it's already happened. They've claimed there's a couple of leaks. Uh, well, that can't be the minister's fault. But the real issue is, well, who gives a rat's hysteria if there's a leak? 
because it's going to be leaked eventually because it's going to come on the Official Information Act. Yeah. So let's go for it. Put our cards on the table and make decisions everybody can understand. Do you think it's possible, and this is why I was sort of asked that next question about the poll, do you think it's possible given that there is, how do I put it, there's a, it seems to me a, a lack of confidence in the two main parties now. They're seen as basically the, the two sides of the same coin or the other cheek of the, the ass as uh, the, the guy, the Scottish guy, and um, Neil Oliver uh, puts it. Um, is there a chance here that a, a party like yours could actually become a prominent party, you know, like roll over the top of one of those other two main parties? Well, I thought you said it was words from Billy Connolly. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah, well, he'd say that too. <laughs> but uh, really, um, at this point in time, those things are not priority in our mind. No, no, I know that, but it's just a, it's a curious question, you know, given... Well, okay, I can tell you this, if the Leopard doesn't wake up, and very soon, as to their demise, they've got a good chance of not going on. Yeah. Uh, looking around, I was looking across them the other day, and I thought, I've seen what you might call inflection times in politics, where a party hits the um, rock bottom and it never and it can't make a recovery. And I was looking across the other day and I thought, you got people should be looking very hard now because you were given a chance. Um, some say you should never have been given a chance in 2017, but you were given a chance, as we said, to ensure that um, capitalism regained its human face. And you didn't do that. You took the, the reason why, that we had the change, com completely forgot that that was a change that was being asked for, thought you'd done it all by yourselves, and you've hit this worst result for a long, long time. And from here, it could be much, much worse. So uh, I think that they've got, and looking at them, a massive problem. And they're a comp and the competition, their competition is the Greens, as I've said. They're heading towards the Greens. 54 years, if you include 72, when the Values Party was started, 54 years now being in cabinet and Te Pāti Māori in a race to the bottom of uh, separatism and apartheid. Uh, Labour's got a real problem to understand what it stands for and get back to doing what it should be doing. Because it could be argued that they they basically stuffed the country. Everyone's at each other's throat. It's tribalism everywhere now, all over the place. The economics are crap, yes. you know. Well, it's, it's what they did. I mean, they headed down the secret path under the radar, covertly, preparing for a, a rights based on ethnic background. And this is an appalling basis to uh, fracture rights, so to speak. And they did it. And I thought to myself, what on earth do they think they're doing? How can they possibly justify it? And if the mass majority of those who are claimed to be Maori from the 1975 Electoral Act definition, have got far more other ethnic blood, like uh, Scottish, Irish, dare I say it, uh, Croatian, all sorts of different backgrounds. Why are they disowning one part of their background and uh, worshipping and signalling uh, respect for the, the other side? And how can they look at their grandmothers and grandfathers who have different backgrounds and say and do what they're doing? And they really need a come uh, a, a eyes wide open moment. Stop and tell me what you think you're doing uh, when all those great leaders in Maoridom in the past were hitting and from the day of the Treaty of Waitangi and even before then, Governor Gray, misunderstood person as he is, but was heading for a different country, a country based on equality, 
we're all people equal. And I'm not arguing that we succeeded, but we succeeded far better than nearly any population on earth. And here we are, we've got these people into um, uh, political uh, and the governance re-engineering without authority and things gone haywire. You know, but given the caliber of the people engaged in that, I'm confident we can turn it around because we're not dealing with geniuses here. Yeah, well, I noticed that some of the um, exchanges in Parliament um, went basically viral, a lot of comment about it, um, and uh, uh, relating to Māori Party members. I saw a video of them in, in, in the House for the, you know, when, when Parliament started. It looked like a bit of a clown show to me. Is that Well, of- you know, if they had have asked the rest of Parliament, look, can we, when we are sworn in, follow this process, when we're all bound to do that, this is a process that began at 1854, and no one's arguing we go back to there or 1964, but on the way through, across the political divide was an acceptance of what was allowed to happen and what was not allowed to happen. It's called majority rule, where you have serious respect for the minority, and every good speaker has a job to defend the rights of the minority in a democracy. But no, we didn't have that. We just hijacked and I was saying to them, who told you you can put the huya feather in your head? Who told you, when the great movement led by Ratna, that you are the ones that are the inheritors of the huya feather? Just tell me that. So I thought they needed to be reminded. You may think and create your own um, sort of uh, self-respect in Parliament, but you won't get it unless others respect you. And the first thing they need to do is not think that they're the new reformists with such a small number of uh, of supporters, but that um, they'll learn, and if they do learn, they might survive. Right on that long term, they're going to survive as a political party either. Um, and that uh, reminds me also of the reaction to the um, the names of government ministries, etc. Um, back uh, the the names being changed back to English first and Maori second. And and the reaction to that as well. So, for the record, are you attacking? Are you attacking Toreo Maori by doing that? Of course not. Unlike those other people, I was there when Toreo Maori was first supported, when it was first got the backing. Knows know this. I know the circumstances of it. Not this modern modern version of teaching university of how they got Maori language backing in this country, but the actual facts. Uh, but the point is. They are saying, how dare you change the name from Waka Kotahi back to what it should be, the Land Transport Agency? And the answer is, well, how dare you change it to a word that only 95% could understand or a phrase that 95% could understand? And please don't tell me that a waka is a vehicle and that's why you could have a, a boat on the road or a canoe on the road or a waka on the road. You have ridiculous symbolism and you're trying to justify it. It shows me and tells me how out of touch you are and why the mass majority of them have never run a successful business. Because in business, when you're running a business, you're faced with that blunt thing called reality. If you spend more than you earn, you're going to go broke. Yeah, not to mention Air New Zealand having a flying walker as well, which I uh, don't think well, I've ever seen one fly before. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's extraordinary. They're actually trying to defend the effort indefensible, and the point is that the ordinary Maori in whose name and in the numbers they use the Maori numbers to demand these outcomes and the Maori name to claim these uh, uh, sort of rights, but they've never, the ordinary Maori, been asked. And in the Hokianga and in the East Coast and all around the country, 
The Ori Mai, like every one of their fellow New Zealanders, just wants the potholes to be fixed up. Yeah, so the suspension doesn't get ripped out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Um, in terms of the um, those departments, those ministries, did you have a reaction from the management of those ministries when, you know, these names are starting to change again? Were they were they believers? Look, I often said, and I said to my, to my cabinet colleagues, there's a famous line about the River Thames, but it's got a symbolism and a reference for politics. And the famous verse goes about the River Thames, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. And there are some of the civil servants, some civil servants have got that in their head. For politicians and governments may come or go, but I go on forever. And the story is, well, get that in your head right now. We're going to change those names. We're going to do things right. We're going to govern for the mass majority, all of the country. And if you don't like that, you know what to do, don't you? It's called democracy. Yeah. You can walk out the door, right? Yes. Um, a couple of quick questions uh, before we uh, wind up the chat. Um, reaction to the ferries not being funded. Did, did we hear that right? And <clears throat> That's not funding the infrastructure or not funding the ferries. People are falling about over that one too. Look, it's a very serious issue. It's not my portfolio. I was in charge of it 17 to 20 when I took the job on because I, re- I saw rail being run right into the ground. And uh, the north to uh, north line to Whangarei was in such bad shape. The 17 tunnels had not been lowered, so you couldn't put the freight on there from, like containers. North of Whangarei to Aotearoa had been shut down. All over the place had been run down. And I took the job on, and I'm proud of it, and they can't deny it, and we turned it around. Now, we had got the board uh, commissioning or request for new ferries as part of that preparation. But they signed the contract in 2021, and the Minister of Finance, Robinson, would have been the one to sign that out as well. And here's what they did. I mean, 21% was for the ferries, and the rest was for infrastructure. And right then, the cost blew out. And I would like to think that we're at this point right now where decisions have to be made, but that the long-term purpose of the rail across the Cook Strait, that is, the ferries, uh, is something we aspire to if it can possibly be done. Because we're not two islands, we're one country, joined up by that magnificent uh, delivery that we had there. But go back on ferry purchasing and commissioning the last 35 years. It's been one disaster after another. Yeah, We had the one ferry, we took it up the, to Asia and got it extended. The other Terry, yeah. Yeah, and then it started bouncing around, and the shaft broke, and the 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 um, propeller fell off. But the, that one, another one as well, had That's all these right. problems. We've had one commissioning disaster after the other, and what we want now is, I think, uh, and I'll be talking to the minister, but it's going to be made by the it's just made by cabinet. But let's stop now and say what did we get wrong? If we have been part of getting it wrong in the past, let's own up to it. But get it right now because it's infrastructure. That'll be here for 30, 35 years before we not require anything new. In the meantime, it is a critical utility for this country's wealth. How do we do so well then in the early 60s with the, the two that came, you know, the roll-on, roll-off, the Aramawan and the Aranui from memory? They operated for decades and never missed a beat. Well, I'll tell you how it did so well. And it's really, a, really an accident. 
Um, we did the impossible because you should not be able to make decisions unless you've been university trained. And yet those practical men and women in power at the time, many men, but um, a lot of women were involved in decision-making. Those practical people back then who hadn't been to university, nevertheless had been through the university of life. Many of them had been to the war. They saw that Helen came, came back from it and they decided to fix the country up. And they made all these practical decisions which are bewildering to all these uh, university graduates now in Parliament. <laughs> That's how we did it. Maybe we should go around and find people who've got practical experience and put them into Parliament and then not university degrees. Well, you know, things used to work. Unless I'm missing something, they used to be reliable. And, well, I know, uh, I, but I'm not being facetious, but you're quite right. You know something, a guy called Vogel in the 1870s in New Zealand, that's the 1870s, built more railways with a horse and cart and the labour force than New Zealand built for the next 130 years. He did it in, he built it in 10 years. Yeah. He yes. built it in 10 years. And, and, had, and did, didn't... We've got, um, we got, we got to get our can-do attitude back. Didn't, didn't we build 70,000 houses in the 30s or something in one year as well? <laughs> well, that's the incredible thing. Wow. This is, this is the charming thing about politics. In the four, 30s and the 40s, uh, the Labour Party started and they realised ha housing was critical after the Depression, and they set out to get housing done with practical solutions. Housing that uh, where the people who made the houses understood that water can run uphill. All those things, sound, structure and everything, and they're building them there tens of thousands, and the National Party's watching the late in the 1940s and thinking to themselves, now, we've got to do the same. But what we'll do, we'll call it a property-owned democracy. We'll make private ownership critical. We'll call it a property-owned democracy, and we'll go down the same path, but it'll have a new name. And that was the brilliance of the National Party. They didn't uh, stop the policy. They reshaped it on the basis that a house owner is likely now to care more for the house and be uh, a change a citizen. Now, I personally believe that that is critical now, that we need, we can't have the same size houses because they got too big, but we're going to have to go back and get these houses built for people and just to make sure we've got a rather impossible task going forward. The latest figures came out for immigration to New Zealand for the 12 months of the end of October 2023, and it's a crushing 128,000. Whoa. You know, just staggering. Where do they live? Where do they live? Ooh. Where are the hospitals? Where are the, where's, the, where's the schooling? All yeah. those things happen under our nose. It's almost like a giant act of sabotage. So, Well, you've got to wonder, actually, that, because yeah. it's so lacking common sense. Well, if you, uh, you know, if you are a person who claims to be a socialist or a lefty, Pray tell me what you were thinking about those new immigrants in terms of their needs when you allowed this to happen now in your name in your country. I'm sick personally of the folly and fraud, and, and fraud of some of these thinkers who make these decisions and have got no answers as to how we're going to house them now. 78 or 80,000 will have come to Auckland and we haven't got the housing for them and we uh, they're going to be in a long queue against people who've been waiting far long to be able to buy an affordable home. Well, good luck with that one. A um, couple of final questions. Uh, you you said you well, mentioned... When you, say, when you say good luck with that one, you know something? If we could fix this, though, even now. We could fix this even now if we had a cross-the-party uh, understanding that this is a priority, that housing, health, education and first world wages are the four priorities of great governments, 
and set out to fix it where we don't have arguments and disputes and all sorts of planning uh, statements that end up or planning requirements that end up where your cost of building, uh, the permission or allowance uh, portion of that cost is 32 to 38%. This is just earth-shattering stuff. So I'm yeah. confident we can fix it, but uh, and we should make it a priority. Yeah, I guess the reason I say good luck with that is because we know that um, housing is very expensive. A lot of people are maxed on their mortgages. Interest rates have gone up. No one can really take a hit on house prices going backwards too long, and to increase the supply might do that. So that's really where, where I was coming from on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know the theory. Not easy. I know the theory, as Mike Moore used to say, well, we know it works in practice, but let's see if it works in theory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you, you mentioned Fiji. I, I saw in the media that you'd met with uh, Sitaveni Rambuka there, the Prime Minister of Fiji, and he said you were good for the Pacific. I picked up from that that he was kind of relieved that you were there. Is that how you... Well, look, it's, it, was, it was kind of him to say so. Uh, just that um, I was, wanted to get to see them because the Fijians are a big population in the Pacific, a very central part of the Pacific with a lot of international agencies there. It is also the centre where the Pacific Island Forum has been and, and is now. And uh, then there was also the chance of meeting um, uh, the, the leader of the opposition and also a number of his ministers and also the Prime Minister of uh, of Tuvalu, which we all did in the space of 24 hours. It was a pretty whirlwind trip, but the exciting part apart from that was to go to the fifth development in our aid program of a health facility, which is so critical in the most dense part of Fiji. And the other four we've finished, and the fifth one uh, is build, being built, and we will finish it possibly by mid February or March, a long-range project we put our minds to. But it's those sorts of things where New Zealand can be of enormous help and where foreign aid does matter because we live in a blue continent, which is about one-fourth of the Earth's Earth surface, and we are a key component of it. And our security in going forward in the future depends on our ability to help ensure that our part of the world is safe and secure. So seeing uh, Rambuka after all those years, um, I've seen him a number of times before, but it was quite amusing. And uh, to, to get the agreement that, you know, we need to set targets that are sustainable, that are capable of being soundly audited and get many things done with far greater speed and not have people dragging on seven years trying to get a sound water source when we could have solved that in possibly seven months. Right, yeah. couple of last questions. Let's get Wellington moving is something that we've been um, talking about on this radio station with uh, retailers here and uh, um, a group that was formed to oppose that. And then, of course, there are all the walking and cycling initiatives around the country, the, the tracks, uh, and uh, that's affected big cities and small towns, and, and people are grumpy about those. So limiting those and the let's get Wellington moving thing being stopped in its tracks, not moving anymore, that kind of sends some signals, right? Oh, look, let's get Wellington moving has become, why don't we relocate the capital? That's how a lot of disasters going on here. Truly, I've looked at photographs of Wellington going back 30, 40 years, photographs of Auckland. You know, the people were coming down the street and there was a mark down the middle for left and right. That's how many people were yeah. walking Wellington streets and businesses could thrive. And I saw a full-scale planning attack 
condoned by the, the um, by successive governments on the very essence of a city, on small business in particular and with the workforce who needed those businesses, not just as customers, but also for, also for employment. A total attack in Wellington and Auckland on the major configuration of a city, so to speak, um, re-engineered by designers without any permit, without any democracy, without any consultation, and look what a flatulent disaster it is now in both cities. It's criminal what's happened here, and I'd hate to be a business person in Auckland and parts of Auckland and parts of Wellington because no one seems to understand how essential you are, even though you pay the rates for the very city itself. One of the uh, champions was the Wellington mayor. She's on on board with this flip. <laughs> Must have been a little awkward for her, do you think? Well, um, as I say, the tragedy of Wellington, and I'm not pointing at any group of mayors, and one of them, the former one, is now a member of my caucus, and I'm yeah. very pleased about that. Yeah. But Wellington's got to ask herself, why have you had so many mayors? Why have we gone round and round in circles? Continuity and experience matters. Could you finally get one that you like and a few councils you like and get some things done and take out the politics and the experimentation and ask yourself, what of our population who are hard-pressed paying the taxes and the rates, what do they want? Maybe you should ask them. And don't have a little group or little lobbyists and sections uh, pushing their views I saw, and this is knocking, not knocking cycling. I've been to Scandinavia and seeing in, in Holland and the cyclists and the, the utility of this uh, uh, method of getting around. But I look at so many parts of Auckland and Wellington and I see a cyclist every now and again and ask, what on earth happened here? Yeah, well, it's it's the expense, I think, that people uh, worry about, how much it costs for, the, for these things. And um, the Lambton Quay, Willis Street... Um, decarification or vehicleization that was planned for get Wellington moving, you know, was getting close to $200 million. And, you know, people are just wondering, well, where do they think the money comes from? So, But that is the point. And then the question is, uh, is it going to be, in terms of being used by the consumers, the customers, uh, by visitors, is it is use going to be maximised? And the answer is it could not and could not and should not because it's been hostile it's been hostile to the most critical thing. The main streets of Wellington and Auckland are hostile to visitors. They're hostile to cars. And they have this sort of unusual uh, reflection. They must be built for the Northern Territories or uh, Darwin or places like that where at Alice Springs it doesn't rain. I mean, well, <laughs> there's no chance of people getting out of the vehicle without getting wet. And when it, it rains and when it rains in Auckland, and it doesn't, it's not, that's not even reflected. So that's the sad thing, I think. Um, and I, as I say, it's not being nostalgic. Go and get some of those photographs when the. I, I know the ones you mean. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and the place is swarming with people. It's buzzing. Buzzing. Alive. And vehicles and buses and everyone's there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, last thing, you'll be aware of um, the whistleblower data dump of the last few weeks. Barry Young, a.k.a. Winston Smith. Um, just a couple of questions around that. Do you have any concerns, from what you know anyway, uh, so far um, regarding implications of this data and where it might or, or, or what it might do, what effect it might have in any sort of inquiry um, that that you've been talking about? Have you thought about that? Is there any issue there? 
I can tell you that I was approached by uh, one person who I'm, I'm not going to name now, uh, but was more or less saying, you must see this person, you must uh, do this information. And then I was approached by him, and but without a name, and I in the end said, look, it's a matter of courtesy. I've asked you for your name and what is it? And he says, Winston Smith. This is on the day before, the hours before the dump. Right. I thought, well, that's a bit of a coincidence. I do not think that's true. I wasn't, this is not my first rodeo. I didn't come down the last shower. And so I refused to be engaged. Uh, but notwithstanding that and every other aspect of it, like everything else, these matters should be independently analyzed to see whether they have utility or value or not. And I don't know the answer to that. But as I say, I had a terrible feeling that I was about to be used. And um, having come through the most expensive long campaign, I thought, no one's going to treat me like that. It's just too hard and too difficult. I am open to, unlike other politicians, most, most of the politicians, I want to hear both sides of the story. I want to hear the facts so that when the public is told something, they can believe what they're being told. Yeah, but the um, relating to this, if the data is um, is wrong or it doesn't reflect uh, what the Ministry of Health say, they could clear that up in hours, couldn't they? Well, they can if they apply uh, to the response and independent an, an analyst or analysts and not themselves. It's the independence that gives the public a chance to say, well, I trust that. But a compromised health system is not the, and should not be the arbiter on this matter. Okay. So it won't have, like it won't scupper or, or lessen the, um, I guess, uh, the depth of any inquiry because people are a bit worried that it might have caused a problem for any sort of planning for that. You tell those people that I made a speech in Whangarei and I detailed what I wanted and we're going to get it. Nothing short of that, exactly that, precisely that. That's what I promised. That's what I asked people to back me on and that's what they're going to get. We've already made sure that our, our reservation for the decision-making was placed before the World Health Organization. We did that before 1 December. We're going to get rid of the Therapotics Bill, like I said we would, and very, very soon in the new year. And we're going to have our inquiry going forward in, the, in 2024 on this matter with all the things we said that we're going to do, we're going to do. Say to them, these doubting Thomases, give us a chance. We've only been there two weeks to get it right. <laughs> Come on, you've got to do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not promise. Speed it up. I did not promise a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, do you think we'll ever get to see that Pfizer contract, though? We need to see that, don't we? We need to see what that said. Yeah, I'd love to answer that question for you now. Uh, but well, you a, must have access to it, do yeah, you? Yeah, but, but if, somebody, but, if somebody who's a lawyer, before I rush to answer the question, I want to know whether I have got the capacity, if I'm answering in the affirmative, if I've got the capacity to do that, and that someone hasn't signed away my rights to find out. Okay. That's what uh, uh, well, Yeah. Right? That's what I'm going to find out. I mean, this is where sometimes you've got these uh, secret arrangements not available for disclosure until 35 years. Uh, this is uh, breathtaking stuff. But uh, uh, I am, uh, let me tell you, that is something that, that I'm going to find out. And when I do, I'll let you know. 
Well, okay. I hope, I hope we can be first in line for that. <laughs> well, I never, right. I never guaranteed all that before the election. I just guaranteed uh, the most critical thing was to ask good questions. And the thing that's yep. been most absent from the politics I observed in recent years is the failure of ministers, and dare I say, prime ministers, to ask seriously good questions and stay there until they've found the answer. It's not being inquisitive, it's finding out. Well, they might not want to know the answer. This is the thing. So you just don't ask the question. Well, that's sadly the case as well. Uh, you know, we saw horrifying experience 2021 20, uh, and two, where there was a sign up in Parliament not to talk to anybody who had a different view or protest. That, that was breathtaking. I hope we'll never see that again in our democracy. Well, thank you for coming on um, this uh, last time before the end of the year. Next year, 2024, is going to be incredibly uh, interesting, fascinating, all those things. Thank you for also giving us some time. I think we've we've chatted about six times now on this program. You've been on the other programs with Cam and, and so on and so forth. It's been a really impressive um, outcome for New Zealand First. A lot of people are relieved. I could go on. But anyway, thanks for coming on um, before the end of the year and chatting one more time. Have a great Christmas, New Year, and uh, hopefully we can talk again in 2024. Look, I was talking to Parliament uh, first, first, first week getting back, and I said those people who talk to me before the election are going to be talking to me after it, and Reality Check Radio is one of them, and uh, they'll get a chance every time that I've got a, a map available, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go on doing it like I've done for years. But some of you who try to gaslight me out and shut me out and wouldn't talk to me until after the election, are you going to find my doors not as wide open <laughs> as those who, whether they agree with me or not, were prepared to, nevertheless, let's, uh, as Phil Collins saying, hear both sides of the story. And that's the magic of the media, after all. Exactly. And, and, and you make up your own mind from what you hear. Totally. Yes. Well, you're, you're actually somebody, you call a citizen... And you are the master. Well, that's the way I, I understand democracy, but it's not. We've got versions of that here that don't, don't look the same. Well, it's been um, it's been shut up. We don't want to hear from you, <laughs> <laughs> which is the complete opposite, almost. So, uh, thanks again. Um, uh, have a great uh, um, time over the the early summer period. We'll talk again in twenty four. Yeah, and to you and your staff and all those around you and all your listeners, uh, all the very very best. Um, have a holiday, a great holiday, and be careful, be safe. And uh, also, if you got a chance, spare a thought for all those that can't go on holiday that are running all the essential services. That's a good point. Yeah. You can say something nice to them. Thank the you. fairies. They'll go a long way. That's right. <laughs> RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it. And right now, they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.